okay, no panic. That's loads of times. But uh, I'm more immediate. When is Felipe coming? Wednesday. Felipe is coming Wednesday, so you can give her a ring uh, Wednesday, Thursday. She's looking for her time to be spent. She doesn't know what to say to the guy, so... But uh, Felipe, by the way, for those of you who don't know, is Shannon's boyfriend. He uh, was here. He's in Portugal at the moment, and he's coming for a holiday to see Shannon. And we will be praying that you have a really good time uh, with him. Um, we're looking at a fantastic passage of Scripture this morning. Uh, my apologies. Not only did I get the title of the sermon wrong last week, but the actual text. Uh, I said Widow of Zarephath. It's actually uh, Elisha. There's two raisings of the dead in the Old Testament, both of them to women, um, and both of them in First and Second Kings, one in the life of Elijah and one in the life of his successor, Elisha. Now, one of the things that it says in the book of Hebrews in the chapter 11, which is a great chapter about faith, is it talks about, and women will receive or did receive their people back from the dead. They received their, and, and you might say, well, why women? Why did uh, the writer of the Hebrews uh, point out that it was women who received the dead back? Well, the two examples in the Old Testament were people being restored to women. But also, I think one of the things that the writer to the Hebrews is pointing out is that in the Old Testament, women often have faith that men were lacking. And why is that? That's one of the questions we're going to ask. Why is it that in the Old Testament, women often have faith that men were lacking? There's a theme, and I, I remember going through an Old Testament overview, of women heroes. Some of them very subtle. Like in the book of Exodus, Zephorah, who is Moses' wife, well, she steps in and circumcises the child so that because Moses had forgotten. She acts like a savior in that situation. And think of all the women heroes in the New Testament. You know, the Syrophoenician woman who was a real outsider but showed faith that many of the men around Jesus were lacking. Think of the night of the cross and the men disciples all run away, but the women stayed by. Think about the fact that when Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared first to women with the good news. There's loads of women heroes in both the Old and the New Testament. And then there's the fact that God has a particular love for four groups of people in the Old Testament. He regularly tells us to look out for the poor, the migrant, the fatherless, and the widow. So one of the questions you might ask is, is God sexist? Is God sexist because he seems to have this favor towards women? Is God sexist? Well, the answer to this actually is that in that society, women were marginalized, as they often are in every society, and that God has a particular relationship with marginalized people. And it's really until we see ourselves as poor and broken and not fitting in, it's not until then, really, that the gospel begins to make sense for us. It's when we see that we're broken that we turn to Jesus. 
And that's why in some cultures, women, including I think many times in our own culture, women have an advantage over men because they're pushed aside. And it's more likely that you're going to look to Jesus when you're on the fringes than when you're in the center. And here we have a situation where, it's a beautiful passage, by the way, isn't it? Like, it's really great narrative, this true story that we have in the life of Elisha. And maybe I shouldn't have taken the whole passage, but we'll see that there is something about this passage, and I think there is a theme that holds this together, and that God steps in to brokenness. God steps in to need. I've been thinking about that a lot in my own life recently. You know, looking at situations where there's a need and taking the time to try to see God's faithfulness in that need. Sometimes it might be his timing and the way things happen or the people he sends to you or even the knowledge that his family pray for you. Look to the situations where God shows his faithfulness in your need. The first one in verse 1 to 7 is filling for the empty. My apologies. You won't believe it. I actually, I, I shouldn't really tell you this, but I, I got up this morning and realized I'd forgotten to do a slide. And someone has tidied away my computer, probably Caroline, and I can't figure out where she's put it. And she's on a, a course today. So I couldn't do up my slide this morning. I didn't want to put more stress on the tech desk by arriving and telling them to uh, do a slide for me. But there are three points. Filling for the empty. To start with, we have a widow. And the widow goes to Elisha and she says, the creditors are coming and they're going to take away my two children. There was a harsh practice in the ancient Near East that if you were in debt, you could be sold into slavery. God, in his great kindness in the Old Testament, steps into such a culture and had regulations to make sure that that wasn't a permanent thing. But she's scared that her two children are going to be taken into slavery because she owes debts. And she goes to Elisha. And what Elisha says is, gather up. She says, what do you have? She's got a little bit of oil, you know, cooking oil, olive oil got a little bit of oil. What do I do? He says, go to your friends, your neighbors, and gather as many vases or, you know, vessels to hold this oil as possible. It, it reminds us a little bit, does it not, of the wedding at Cana, you know, the filling that comes in. And, and she goes and she, she's provided for, not only to pay off her debts, but to live off. And Spurgeon, I'm just pointing this one briefly. Spurgeon writes about this, and he says, you know the thing about this is, what qualified her to receive the oil was the emptiness of the vessels. As much emptiness as she had, there was filling in Jesus. And he said, a full Christ is for empty sinners. And he says, in many ways, this is a picture of us. If you go to God with your fullness and your togetherness and your pride, there's not much He can offer you. But when you go to Him with your brokenness, your emptiness, your need, your guilt, there is abundant provision. I wonder if you need to hear that this morning. 
I wonder if you need to hear that, that there is abundant provision for you as my voice changes. <laughs> it sounds like I'm underlining the point. Do you need to go to God and say, look, I'm broken, I'm in need, I'm guilty, I'm weak, and that is the only way I can come to you. And there is abundant provision. The second thing in verse 8 to 37 is the main point of this text, or the main point that we're looking at, and that is the raising from the dead of the Shulamite's son. She was a wealthy woman, but she had no children. She provided hospitality for Elisha. Hospitality was so valued in the Old Testament, still valued in the New Testament, still valued today. She opened up her home for the prophet to come. He had a room in her house, and he says to her, God is going to give you a son. The son comes, the son grows up, but one day he's out in the fields with his father, he's got a pain in his head, and he drops dead. The woman must have wondered, why would God have given me this son only to take him away? She goes to the prophet Elisha, or no, she knows she needs to go to the prophet Elisha. And notice that every man in this story makes a mess of things. So, so what you have here. And I love the words that she says, it is well. Do you see she keeps saying, it is well? Everyone interrupts her, it is well. It is well. It seems like the commentators say that the it is well is really just she's trying to push them out of the way. Don't get in my way. I need to go to the prophet. It's well. Just, you know, keep your distance. I don't know. I see more in these words. I think this is faith. I tried to figure out, you know that, uh, him, it is well with my soul, whether this was the text that had come to his mind when he heard about his children dying. You know the, the story of the man who wrote the hymn saying it is well with my soul at the time that his, he found out where his children had drowned? I, but I couldn't find anything to say these were the, this was the text. But I think there's faith here. I think that she's saying it's going to be well, you know, my situation, the, the, the most precious thing in my life has fallen apart, but it's going to be well. I think she doesn't tell her husband because I think her husband would only dampen her faith. I think he'd have said, don't bother the prophet Elisha. The child has died. There's nothing that can be done. He's not going to let her get in the way of her faith so she doesn't listen to him. She goes to Elisha's prophet, our servant Gazi, and he says, just go away. You're just interrupting him just like the disciples when they push the children away from Jesus, and she won't let that be. She goes to the prophet, and even Elisha himself actually doesn't seem to know what to do. And she's got this great persistence. She says, I'm not leaving you. I'm not leaving you until you sort this out. I know you can. I know God can do it. And I'm not leaving you like a persistent widow. I'm going to keep on knocking on heaven's door until something happens. And how true that is in the lives of many of you mothers as you bring your children to God. And maybe you've been praying for years over those children. And He sees your persistence and you honor Him with your persistence. There was a woman in the fourth century. Her name was Monica. Her son was a rebel. He, and, and, and she broke her heart over him. 
but she prayed. And one bishop said to her, God can't ignore prayers like yours and tears like yours. And so I say, keep praying for your children, particularly those who are spiritually dead. And so often it's mothers who lay the example of doing that and show that faith. And your nephews and your nieces and and the people in this church, you cry out for them. And you honor God by doing so. And don't give up. And then you have this scene of shocking intimacy. Shocking intimacy. Where Elisha goes in and covers his, the boy with his body. Covers the boy with his body and breathes over that child. And I think we're being brought back to the story in the Garden of Eden of God breathing life into the men and women, man, or into the man, sorry, into the man. And, and there's a, a life-giving here, because that's a shockingly intimate scene. And then you come to the New Testament, and you think of Jesus who comes and brings life to the dead. He brings life to the dead. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though they die, yet shall they live. And here is Jesus bringing life to the dead in response to prayer. You know, if we want to see Crown Jesus Ministries work, if we want to see Crown Jesus Ministries work, if we want to see people around us become Christians, We have to pray, because in the two recordings of healings are raising from the dead in 1st and 2nd Kings, what you have, you have people praying and God responding. And you might say, well, you know, I'd love to see someone raised physically from the dead. God can do that. It happens in different parts of the world. But don't forget that every time someone becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, That is even a more spectacular miracle. We were dead in our transgressions and sins, alienated from God, and he has raised us to life. And that is an immense miracle. You are a resurrected person if you believe in Jesus Christ. This has happened to you through an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, breathing the Holy Spirit into you. And then you get to the last parts of the passage. There's a famine, and uh, it's death, and there's provision. There's the cleansing of poisoned food, and it's provision. There's a multiplication of food, and we're brought, are we not, to um, the feeding of the 5,000 in many ways, that multiplication Jesus who comes and meets our every need. But I want to finish and think again, why women? Why is it, and and in some ways, we've been thinking about, you know, neglected women. This is our last one on this series. And some of them, you know, uh, I was going to do Hagar, but I'd done her before. But these neglected women of the Old Testament. Why is it so often that you go through the Old and the New Testament and you see women showing faith that men don't have because God loves the marginalized. God loves the broken. God loves the vulnerable. 
someone says to you, well, Christianity is only a crutch for the weak. Absolutely. And I am weak. Christianity is, uh, you know, uh, for, for weak people, totally. I don't go to Jesus strong. We go to him weak. We go to him broken. And in some ways, that's how we need to live with each other, isn't it? As broken and weak people who, who try to show we don't have it together. But we have a God who steps into our weakness and breathes his life. And it will be well. It will be well. One day the suffering will be over. Sometimes you'll know why the suffering in this life is the way it is. Sometimes we know what God is at. Sometimes we don't know what God is at. But we say it as well. I know he is faithful. Sometimes that's with blindness and in the dark. Other times it's with sight and in the light. But it will be well. He's bringing us through and he is faithful. And the task for you this week is to to go away and think about God's faithfulness. To go away and look for evidence of his faithfulness. To go away and, and ask God to show you his faithfulness and to give you his strength. Amen.